Hey, you guys, Scott Horton here to remind you that it's fun drive time at the Institute right now. We only do this twice a year, but it's got to be done. And I'm proud to do it, too. We've got an incredible crew of the best writers, authors, and podcasters in the libertarian movement. From Jim Bovard, Lori Calhoun, Tom Woods, and Ted Carpenter, to Keith Knight, Kyle Anzalone, Hunter Dorensis, Connor Freeman, and all the rest of the guys. It's the best team around. We've published three books this year. Keith Knight's Voluntarist Handbook, Lori Calhoun's Questioning the COVID Company Line, and Joseph Solis Mullins, The Fake China Threat. And here any day now, we will be publishing Thomas E. Wood's Diary of a Psychosis, Jim Bovard's Last Rites, and Keith Knight's latest, Domestic Imperialism. That makes 13 books so far, with more coming in the new year, including my new one, Provoked, How Washington Started the New Cold War with Russia and the Catastrophe in Ukraine, which, I know, is already overlong and overdue, but I'm working on it, I promise. And which brings me to the point. We don't have a big glass office building in downtown Washington. The money we raise goes straight to payroll and book production costs, and that's about it. The Libertarian Institute is the best bang for your buck in the movement. If you believe in what we're doing, please go to libertarianinstitute.org slash donate for details on how you can help keep us going into the new year and the great kickbacks we offer as well. And we thank you for your support. All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there, and the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com. Slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, introducing John Robb. He's the author of Brave New War about Iraq War II, and he's got this very interesting and compelling, even though that's the same thing, substack called Global Gorillas. It's at John Robb with two B's there, johnrobb.substack.com. Welcome back to the show. How you doing? Hey, how you doing, Scott? Doing good. Uh, I'm doing great. Appreciate you joining us here. Okay. Um, I like reading your stuff, man. It's very interesting. You have uh, such a unique take here. Can you talk to me at first a little bit about like your background with all this link analysis and network science and this and that, how you got all interested in all that stuff? Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Early background, special ops pilot, worked with SEAL team and um, Delta and stuff and did all that kind of thing for a while and got out and uh, ended up at Forrester. I was like the first internet analyst. So I analyzed all that and got into how the internet works and then um, did some social networking stuff, kicked that off in 2001. So I was into this, how social networking works right at the very beginning because we built most of the kind of methods that we use today. Um, you know, the stuff that you see on Twitter and Facebook look exactly like our stuff back in 2001. Um, so uh, when the Iraq war kicked off, I, you know, I was reading the analysis and it was like, didn't match what I was seeing. Um, and the difficulties they were facing were, were different than they, they anticipated, obviously, 
they were using the wrong models. So uh, what I saw was there was kind of a connectedness to the entire insurgency. I mean, there was like, instead of one group, there were 70. And there were, you know, the first infrastructure that went up in Iraq was uh, cell phones. It was up within weeks. And um, there was a communications flow that I, I was able to work into something called an uh, open source warfare. And that's what I wrote about in, in uh, Brave New War and um, what that meant for insurgency, what that meant for protest, what that now means for uh, politics. And um, has a certain dynamic to it, certain way it works, uh, very counterintuitive, but uh, it explained what was going on in Iraq. And so after I wrote it, you know, all the people coming back, uh, uh, special operators and like, started to, uh, they had read it in the field and go, now this explains what I'm seeing, <laughs> right? I mean, it was nice to get the kind of feedback from people who were actually out there, you know, in the trenches and uh, um, seeing how it worked. And so what, you know, I'm doing recently is the Global Guerrillas Report, which is the focus on how this open source model, how network tribalism works, how the mechanisms by which everything uh, makes sense and um, the models that allow you to, you know, predict what's coming, you know, high degree of predictability um, for, you know, what's coming in the global environment, what's coming in politics. Um, and, you know, I've been applying it to the U.S. politics. I've been applying to uh, the recent wars at the global level from Ukraine to now Israel. Um, and uh, it seems to work. It makes sense of what's going on at a deeper level than you would get out of the news and, and out of a... Um, you know, the kind of reading that most people do. Mm -hmm. So when we talked before, it was about the Twitter swarm and how they had gone far beyond, well, I don't know far, but had gone, I think, in your assessment, beyond what the national security state really wanted with the war in Ukraine. And were demanding, they had a vision of the total evil of the other side and all of this in a way that, you know, Washington, D.C. had more nuanced plans, but essentially what center left liberals on Twitter, they had their own ideas of Putin as Trump and the two minutes hate of the year and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, back in 2001, uh, during or 2021, uh, I saw this similar patterns regarding Israel that there, that, uh, I saw with BLM and, and the other open source movements out there. And I was talking to people at CIA and other places like, Hey, you know, if this goes global, it's going. It could disconnect and take down a state pretty quickly. And, and my guess would probably be Israel, given the movement I already saw on this. And um, you know, I, I was wrong. I mean, it was Ukraine was kicked off, and and the disconnection of Russia occurred. And and the dynamic we saw uh, in response to that invasion was, um, you know, completely out of control. I mean, is that people saw Putin as the ultimate evil connected to Trump and they kicked off a, a swarm that uh, grew to a global level and, and disconnected Russia in a matter of weeks. Uh, and they're able to power through it. But I mean, as a relatively disconnected state, I mean, there were people were, you know, companies were leaving. Uh, the uh, even people were kicked out of discussion groups. It was it. I mean, it, it, it's very damaging long term for them. Um, it's going to hurt their economic growth over the long term. And, um, you know, I, 
I analyze the dynamics of the, how the swarm works, how the swarm thinks, uh, the network tribalism underneath that, and it, and it seemed to be pretty explanatory for, for what was going on then and how dangerous it was, how dangerous it was when it comes to uh, global warfare and, and war and peace, because they kicked off this new uh, Cold War with <laughs> Russia, and it, it didn't need, it need to happen. I mean, it didn't, it didn't have to end up that way. Right. But uh, here we are. Uh-huh. And now, so is this the same Twitter swarm then that's anti-war when it comes to Israel-Palestine that were such hawks on Ukraine? Uh, it has a similar origin. To, uh, it, this swarm is, it, it, you know, I've been analyzing it more from the perspective of, of, a, of kind of a network guerrilla war, online guerrilla war. Um, you know, in theory, in, you know, at a broad theoretical uh, level, you know, when you conduct a terrorist attack, typically it's aimed at uh, causing the state, you know, you want to provoke the state into overreacting. And when they overreact, uh, they do moral damage themselves, meaning they, they look bad, they, they look untrustworthy, they look evil. Um, and that moral damage serves as a spark or uh, uh, a tinder for creating a, a guerrilla movement. So terrorism is a way to ignite a guerrilla movement based on moral damage to the state that's largely self-inflicted. Um, and what we're seeing in the online version of this is that the terrorist attack, you know, Hamas against Israel, kicked off an overreaction, was designed to, but the uh, moral damage is adjudicated and accumulated and, and amplified in the online world. And um, that's where the guerrilla conflict is, is being fought, mostly in, you know, uh, in the moral realm. Uh, where, and um, it's been escalating since then and with the goal of eventually you know, BDSing Israel and isolating them and forcing them into capitulation. Yeah, well, sounds good. So I wanted to go to this thing uh, is two essays ago here, the anti-Israel swarm. And right. I get it how this is sort of some A-B testing, but it's also very decentralized uh, kind of A-B testing. And you talk about the messages that don't work and then the messages that do. And it seems pretty cut and dry, but maybe not just intuitive, right? But we know you're right when we hear you say it. So say it. How'd it work? Oh, I mean, what specifically are you looking at? In, well, just in that where you start out with um, it, the, the piece is called the anti-Israel swarm. And you talk about how there were and this is true on the margin. I you know, uh, it must be true that there were some people who were saying things that were expressly or at least implicitly pro Hamas or right. in favor of what they had done. Um and, right. and there were some people who had said explicitly anti-Semitic things or things that were explicitly against all the civilian population of Israel, too. And then also I thought it was interesting that you said pro-Palestinian, i.e. civilian, not Hamas, but pro-Palestinian people sentiment also was a failure. You say what, right. what the one that worked was against the Netanyahu government in Israel. And so all the rest of these were A-B tested right out the window. Even Frank Luntz would agree that the one that works for the Palestinian side is focusing on what Netanyahu and his men have done and are doing. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the swarm we're seeing on the uh, anti-Israel side 
um, is open source and has open source dynamics. And the one thing about open source organizations, there's no leadership, there's no kind of hierarchy that says this is how this is the messaging that we're going to use. It's well thought out or whatever. It's uh, it develops uh, through kind of experiences and 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 you know, throwing things against the wall and seeing what works. Um, and I call it tinkering, where you know we saw this in in Iraq with like say. Uh, ways of, of developing IEDs, you know, when they came up with a methodology by, you know, putting it into play and seeing if it worked or seeing if it attacked work, then everyone would copy it. And in this case, it was trying different messaging strategies. Um, the one that had the uh, most, uh, was most effective and had the lowest barriers to Participation, meaning that every one of those other messages, uh, you know, if you're pro Hamas, you, you'd, you'd exclude a lot of people from participating. Um, if you're anti-Israeli, the individuals, the citizens, uh, you'd exclude a lot of people. Anti-Jew, exclude a lot of people. But anti-Israel uh, seemed to be this broad tent. It became this broad tent for, you know, widespread participation. Um, and it's against the state and it's against the actions. So the cool part from a strat, uh, strategy perspective is that it doesn't force the people who are anti-Israel to defend the actions of Hamas or, uh, you know, Palestinians in general or uh, Muslims in the, around the world. Uh, they're focused exclusively on Israel's actions. And, and if you're pro-Israel, um, you're forced into defending everything Israel does, which is like, a very, very hard thing to do when the, when the bombing campaign is going on and, and basically impossible. Um, and uh, uh, it's it's interesting. I mean, these dynamics are, are, are pretty straightforward to me and, and pretty predictive, but uh, I'm glad you like that. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting to me. And, you know, I'm a kind of an old paleo libertarian and pretty sympathetic with the Palestinian cause here. And um, I think you know that we became acquainted through our mutual friend, Daryl Cooper, who's one of the great experts on early Zionism and all of that. And right. uh, he and I see eye to eye on a lot of this stuff. So on one hand, I'm interested in this in, you know, just, I guess, in a sense, like what works, um, what could be useful for my own purposes, although I'm never dishonest. All I could ever just be is myself anyway, but I, I just like the way you... The way you have it marked out at the top, well, try this, cross that out, try this, cross that out, and that, and then what do you leave left is, to me, it's not just, it has almost nothing to do with what is effective in terms of PR. It's just, to me, what's right. Now, of course, we're talking about the men who control the state of Israel. That's not every Jew in Israel. Uh, it's right. the government. And because I'm a libertarian, like, there's only two kinds of people in this world government employees and everybody else. So I don't look yep. at it like Israelis and Palestinians. I look at it like poor civilians being killed versus horrible groups of armed men killing them, right? Is, you know, the dynamic, the way I look at it, the question mostly around who's aggressing against who and who's the stronger or weaker party or, you know, might have uh, a stronger obligation to be merciful or to offer to negotiate or some kind of thing. And I, so I guess I, what I'm really getting at here, John, is I'm very pleased to see, as you report here, that anti-Semitic stuff doesn't work. Like, it has right. worked in the past. The history of the world includes a lot of anti-Semitism being very effective against 
innocent people in horrible ways. And what you're telling me here is anti-Semitism just doesn't stick in terms of rallying people towards the Palestinian cause at all. It's really the right focus. The correct focus is the actions of the government of Israel here, which is, of course, what actually is at issue, you know, to me. Yeah, it, it, it's a kind of a, one of the things that makes us a swarm a swarm is it has a, an open source movement, an open source movement. It has a very simple goal. And that goal is the you know, anti-Israel, anti-government, force it to change. Um, really simple thing to do. And that that is what all of the participants are trying to, you know, uh, achieve and they have their different reasons for achieving it uh you know you you see some the outcome that that appeals most to you by forcing that change um other people see other things um but it, you know you all agree on the same uh what they call plausible premise um and uh it it, it it's the best way to connect up a lot of disparate groups coming to the movement with their different motivations Right. Yeah. Uh, very good point. And like, for example, we can see we've been cultivating, trying very hard to cultivate this America first anti-war right over the last generation here as people are alienated from the Bush and McCain foreign policy of the past. And then with and they've been gone really since. Uh, look, the real anti-war left credit where it's due. The core of them have stayed. But the mass of the anti-war left has been AWOL since 06, before Obama even came to town, just when Pelosi won the House and Senate back in 06. They climbed back in there on Cindy Sheehan's back, and the anti-war left has been pretty silent. Now they come back waving Palestinian flags and tearing down American flags and this kind of thing. And the anti-war right, the America first right, is so repelled by that that now they're thinking about supporting foreign war again, just so that they're not a commie and not associated with people to their left acting like such jackasses, blocking freeways and all of these things that make decent people so angry, you know? Yeah, well, the, the network the networked right um, was largely sympathetic to Israel's cause for that reason in particular. I mean, they had the similar enemies, the kind of the woke left, the, the you know, the people protesting in terms of raising, you know, Palestinian flags and ripping down American flags, all that stuff really triggered them. But um, what happened was, is that the uh, pro-Israeli faction saw any kind of uh, delving into the kind of facts of the conflict or any kind of uh, even, you know, lukewarm support in the networked right for Israel. Um, as as kind of they they started labeling it as anti-Semitism and started attacking and attacking them. Uh, if you look at Daryl's like a, a threads, whenever he looks into anything, he's like he's attacked constantly as an anti-Semite. Um, so it's what and they did that to you know Candace Owens. They did it to others. And, and the reaction on the network right, the dissident right, is that you know they bristle when they're when they're. Uh, told they can't do something, they can't recognize facts or dig into the facts, they can't, uh, uh, they hate it when they're called names for no no good reason other than to silence them. Um, you know, like if you criticize BLM before, it would be you're racist. If you criticized, uh, uh, you know, the vaccine mandates, then you were nuts and, and willing to kill us all. That kind of stuff is like, the result was that the, the network right just started um 
breaking away, kind of a non-cooperative center of gravity relative to Israel. Mm -hmm. In a a moral war, uh, you think of it kind of as gravitational attraction. You have two planets and they're pulling as much matter as they can from, from the, you know, surrounding environment as possible to get become as big, you know, as they possibly can because their gravity will increase um, relative to the other other planet and eventually become so large that it'll absorb the other planet. And uh, what happens is if 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 one side, if, you know, one one of those planets, one of the, one of the participants in this war, uh, starts acting in a uh, kind of selfish or insular way and starts uh, attacking portions of itself. Uh, allied or affiliated groups that, that uh, uh, are supporting him, they'll break away. You know, they'll start to drift away and drift towards the other, other side uh, or drift away completely. And um, radic- those non-cooperative centers of gravity become um, more numerous as, as the pressure mounts. Um, they start breaking away and eventually you lose as, as, as you lose the war. So, um, yeah, there was an unforced error on the right. I, you know, I see it and now, you know, they're doing it again with Elon and, um, you know, rather than getting moderate concessions, they went to, on the offensive, attacked him and, and then, uh, he, he made some conciliatory dishes, even went, took a visit, but the demands grew. They obviously grew for more and more control over the content on X, um, because Israel's losing the online war. They've lost it. It's completely lost. Yeah. Hang on just one second for me. You guys know that I consider the Defend the Guard movement, led by the combat vets at BringOurTroopsHome.us and DefendTheGuard.us, to be the most important thing happening in American politics today. Simply put, this law would nullify the empire by preventing the state governors from handing their National Guard troops over to the president for foreign combat without an official declaration of war from the Congress. We've made great progress getting it out of committee and even passed the state Senate in Arizona. Help support Bring Our Troops Home and Defend the Guard at bringourtroopshome.us and defendtheguard.us. And their director of field operations, Diego Rivera, teaches a political leadership class that is the most effective training like it anywhere. He's still a soldier, only now his mission is peace. So heads up all you anti-war vets, we've got a mission for you. Find out all about their upcoming training sessions and help support at bringourtroopshome.us and defendtheguard.us. Hey, y'all, you should sign up for my Substack. It's scotthortonshow.substack.com. And if you do that, you'll get the interviews a day before everybody else. But not only that, they'll be free of commercials. How do you like that? Pretty good, huh? scotthortonshow.substack.com. Well, you know... Going back, John, I remember it was 2014 was the first time that the Palestinians won the PR war in America. Like 2008 and 9, this was Facebook was pretty much brand new then. And I don't know exactly what the poll said then. I don't remember, but the effect was less. But I know for a fact that in 2014, the polls said the American people sympathize with the Palestinians, which was unheard of because everybody right. knows that they're savage orc, Islamic suicide bomber, barbarians from hell, and that the Israelis are the perfect, nicest, little, most wonderful allies of America who would never harm a fly. And yet Facebook and Twitter showed the people of the country otherwise. And there was nothing that the PBS NewsHour and the NBC Nightly News could do about it. That you just see the devastation in Gaza and these poor people uh, living in such circumstances. And 
I remember then knowing that one, this is huge for us, but also two, boy, the State Department must be going completely nuts right now because this is not how it is supposed to be from their point of view. I think that probably has a lot to do with the impetus behind the rise of the censorship industrial complex in the last decade was partially in reaction to them seeing what social media can do when it's not properly, from their point of view, controlled. Yeah, well, TikTok and X now are completely outside of their control. Um, the censorship machine, whether it's you know pro-Israel or, or or the government, and um, and also the educational kind of basis for the uh, anti-Israel movement is, has been in place in the U.S. educational and probably EU educational system for the last twenty to thirty years. Mm -hmm. So, uh, effectively, uh, you know, every poll saying this is that you know it, people under forty. Uh, are uh, they don't excuse Israel? They they don't see them as justified in their actions. Um, they're largely anti-Israel, um, and that um, the control that uh, the pro-Israel network has over uh, the U.S. traditional media um, isn't effective at all anymore. Because almost all you know, a standard nightly newscast has what seven million people. Six of those million, or six out of those seven million people are over fifty-five. Right. And that means like only one million is, is under 55. And, and you go online, you go to, you know, one of the viral TikTok posts uh, like that, uh, that uh, former State Department official from Bush Obama years who handled the Israel uh, Palestine issue started doing these rants against this uh, falafel guy, a street truck vendor. And over a course of seven, several weeks, he was, you know, filmed doing it. Um, he's working on a you know, pro-Israel lobbying group, um, and they put it up on TikTok. And they, I mean, it was just a, you know aggressively attacking this guy. I'm going to send you back to Egypt, and your 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 kids and and you and everyone will you know be tortured in Egyptian prisons. And you know, I'll call my friends over in immigration to get this going right now. That kind of stuff. And he eventually got arrested. But that post, those videos, got seen by hundreds of millions of people. Hundreds of millions. I mean, anyone under you know under fifty years old now gets most of their information, most of their news through online sources, and that's the kind of stuff they're seeing. Um, and that you know that kind of post is you know, just one of the many, many, many uh, posts that are you know recharacterizing Israel as a as a state conducting genocide. Uh, that is a apartheid state. It's now becoming very common to see. Uh, that we, you know, they need BDS to handle it. All of these things are starting to grow. Um, the narrative is shifting, and, and under forty, they've lost it. And I, you know, I found a. I don't know if this was. A, I, I think it was an accurate leaked audio of uh, Jonathan Greenblatt from uh, ADL talking about this very issue. Um, they thought they had got the left right locked, and they do in the standard political kind of center right, center left. Uh, the political establishment is very, very pro-Israel, um, but the under 40s, they've, they've lost it. And um, any kind of like, you know, push they've made in, in terms of controlling news coverage. I mean, the IDF soldiers that they had come on uh, the nightly news broadcasts, uh, they were so arrogant and, and so heavy handed and, and, and you know, I mean, sometimes giggling when they're talking about how killing civilians and the like, and it was just like 
any under 40s that I've seen interact with it has been just brutal. They don't they don't trust anything on the nightly news anymore. They they make fun of the kind of the claims being made. And um, to a certain extent, I, I see it almost as a as a bad thing for the United States as well, is that these under 40s are seeing the U.S. give unqualified and unconditional support to Israel. And Israel is doing such a bad job in terms of, you know, executing and justifying and, and their policies are a mess right now. And um, that unqualified support for bombing civilians and killing kids is now transferring to the United States government. And they're, they, it's losing legitimacy by proxy. Right. You know, it's a, it, and that uh, it's affecting the, the loyalty that these people have, these young folks, and, and we're talking majority, 60, 70% of, of anyone under 40, they're losing loyalty to the United States yeah. as a nation. As, as, and, uh, well, would you go that far, really? They're, you're talking about the leftists upset about what Biden's doing? or? Oh, I don't know. It's not just leftists. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's the people who are saying, uh, yeah, well, there, there uh, are, is going to be pushed back inside the Democratic Party. But for, for younger people in general, seeing the U.S. connected to it is a delegitimizing event for the United States. Well, it's certainly, uh, you know, crippling Joe Biden's electability here. Uh, he is down right off the bat. He was down 11 points and it may be much more than that by the time he's done. And then this one was maybe too good to be true. I don't know. It wasn't like the most deeply sourced poll had it at 56 percent. But then a recent uh, another poll. I'm sorry. I don't remember which one, John, but you've probably seen it uh, has half five zero percent of American Republicans want a ceasefire. I mean, right. this is just incredible. I mean, that th their knee is supposed to be jerking for Likud right now, and somehow it's malfunctioning. Yeah, going into this conflict, Israel had 80% support with people over 65. I mean, that's the most loyal cohort. And um, it, what happens even with the nightly news and in the traditional news that those folks are consuming is that uh, the online uh, information flow is upstream of the traditional media's information flow. So what goes on online, what gets decided online, uh, what gets unearthed and discovered and, and propagated online, uh, eventually ends up dictating how the news covers those topics. From the language, from the, the information that's used, it's, it's, you know, it's where they find stuff and they actually put it in, you know, how, to, how to kind of spin it and conjugate it and, and uh, approach it and frame it. Um, so if you win online, you win the traditional news too. And um, that's having any effect on these older voters as well. I, it's just that at the current pace of, of, of events is that Israel is going to end up becoming isolated and lose the support of the United States. And um, the squeeze on, on the senators and congressmen and others who are, or are you know, providing kind of defensive fire for them in, inside U.S. political machines is going to uh, diminish very rapidly. And uh, you know what happens with BDS? I mean, I, you know, I went to South Africa in the 80s and I saw the pressure they were under, justifiably so, for their former government. And being isolated to that extent um, 
with something that that's not survivable, particularly for a small country. Well, you know, I think for Israel, the threat that they'd really be cut off from global capital is very minimal. But it's still regardless, PDS is a huge public relations catastrophe for them because it just raises the question. First of all, you're labeling it apartheid Israel, which is accurate and can't be just explained away. Um, and, um, and also it just raises huge questions of controversy in some neutral Joe's mind. Why would anyone want to boycott Israel? I thought we like Israel. And then the answer is, well, therein hangs the tale, pal. Let me tell you about the occupation. Let me tell you what you don't know about why people indeed would be so upset that they would have a campaign like this. And personally, I'm against sanctions of all kinds, but I'll take the B and the D. And I know a lot of libertarians who feel the same way about that. And it is, you know, nothing else. It's a way of adding more people to the swarm, as you would call it, I guess, right? Or, or maybe you would just say raising the level of consciousness of Americans and others as to who's occupying who over there and what's the big controversy anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, this, this kind of perma-crisis, perma-war kind of situation that we're in is that um, none of these, you know, have to be decided in a, in a single incident. So, you know, if things die down from here, say this ceasefire just continues indefinitely and, and and there's no more action and things just wind down uh this will you know fall off the uh, uh radar of most people as the next event in the perma crisis pops up but when the event when, when when events happen again there it'll pulse away stronger than ever i mean it will it will surge it'll trigger it and it just go uh push forward to you know a, gr a greater degree than what we've seen so far and um, I do think it's very possible that we'll end up with a situation. I do think they can be cut off from global capital. I mean, everything I've seen in finance and, and, and in corporate relations is that the pressure can become intense enough that they end up as disconnected as South Africa. Wow. Even Israel, huh? Yep. And, I, you know, it, prior to any of this kind of networked warfare and the like, it would have been impossible. But... Um, you know, it, it, it's possible in the way things are going now. Thing is, you, you, for the pro-Israeli side, is that you know you just can't deny it's happening or or try to force a censorship solution um, on the on the online space, which you know they're trying with Musk and putting pressure on him to you know censor and clamp down on any kind of anti-Israel um, messaging and, and and virality. Is that uh, the best and only solution is, is to find a way to um, win in, in, in terms of the, I mean, improve your moral stance in ways that you, you, you weren't thinking about before. Mm. Well, you know, I and mean, uh, there's our, ways to do that, but it's just not going to be comfortable. Yeah. Uh, I mean, our buddy Daryl pointed out that even despite the fact that Hamas's atrocity of the seventh was unparalleled as far beyond right. anything they had ever done before. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people killed, um, uh, civilians killed, never mind the IDF, but it was just this huge atrocity. And, and yet within a very short amount of time, 
it was not just the radical left or something, but it was consensus that you're on probation, Israel, don't go too far. And this kind of sentiment kind of right away, people were willing to question what they were going to do, possibly even really before they started much of the bombing campaign. People were already looking very skeptically in spite of the horror of what had just happened. So in other words, the ball has moved very far down the field already, right? Yeah, no, I mean, and that's the that's the way tribalism works in in, in, in you know, network swarm kind of context is that um, in tribal structures the enemy isn't even a human, <laughs> and um, in in this sense that you know what happens to them doesn't affect you personally. I mean, that's the whole thing. You're like, you know, you go back to apocalypse now, right? It's like what Colonel Kurtz was looking for is our tribal warriors, people that can go out and do all sorts of atrocities and and not have them morally impacted by that um in the in the swarms case is that um they're focused on anti-israel and they don't have to excuse hamas and and and, and their actions but and that separates it in their head um and um it's not part of the, the the pattern by which they make sense of the world and they and parse the information flow they're getting from the online sources is that uh they don't even see the atrocities. In fact, it, it, it doesn't even register with them. I mean, they might glance at it and go, oh, that was terrible. And then they just just slides off them. Um, and it. You know, I don't know, like, John. Uh, Are you sure that that's fair? Because, um, you know, I was looking at it more like everybody was in agreement about what had happened on the 7th and the 8th. It was just some people were willing to say that defending themselves after that means they can do anything after that for as long as they want. And other people thought that defending yourself is actually a more limited definition. Like, you know, and a reprisal is something else. And that what they were doing was going much too far. As you say, with the purpose of terrorism is provoking that overreaction in the first place in order to provoke the counterreactions, right? That debate didn't last long, though, did it? Well, I'm not sure. I mean... Going back to something else that you said about sort of the demonization of anybody sticking up for the Palestinians is they want to say that anyone who has anything to say from the Palestinian or, you know, just to describe the Palestinians point of view at all or anything like that means that you're a horrible anti-Semite and a a horrible Jew hater. Why won't you just admit that what you really mean to say is, you know, just like with the uh, the BLM calling everybody a racist for no reason and that kind of thing. And it seems like. um so because that conversation is ongoing, people are constantly being accused of being pro-Hamas and pro-terrorist. So then we're constantly given opportunity to explain that no dummy, it's Benjamin Netanyahu that supported Hamas. So we wouldn't have to deal in good faith over the West Bank. And there's no decent, civilized person that supports what Hamas did. They're butchering innocent civilians. Humanity has agreed on our opposition to that. It's just whether you believe that that's a blank check for Israel to do what they want in reprisal. I understand what you're saying about tribal war, this, that, whatever, but when you're talking about American leftists, they don't not see Israeli Jewish civilians. You know what I mean? Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, I think you misunderstand me. Okay, I did then. They saw it. But it didn't. It didn't register as like a uh, an event that they obsessed over. It's like well, okay. uh, they could see the facts. I mean, it's um, it's hard to describe. Is you know, I, I mean, for for you know, pro-Israel folks, it was a seminal event. It was the thing that they focus on exclusively, and um, 
for those against Israel, they, uh, you know, they would say, okay, they'd be asked, okay, do you think this was a horrible event? You go, sure, of course it was. It was a terrible thing. Boom, it's gone. It disappears. It, you know, let's get focused on the on the issue that that really matters right now. And so it's that's the kind of sliding by. I see. You know, it, well, it's it's not. You don't have to spend in, incredible amounts of, or you, they don't spend incredible amounts of time defending it or justifying it. Or and if they do, uh, you know, as that iteration that we were talking about earlier uh, proves out, is that that becomes a rabbit hole. Right. Right. And, and um, the right kind of tribal mindset for, for winning this conflict from their perspective is, is that you acknowledge that it was horrible and you put it to bed and move it out of the way. It's not the focus. The focus yeah. is Israel. Um, that's sweeping it away. It's not a, you know, not a long, drawn-out discussion of it. Yeah. Hey, y'all, I got a new coffee sponsor. Mundo's Artisan Coffee at mundosartisancoffee.com. When I wake up in the morning, I feel like my brain is all dried out. I need to pour a hot mug of rich, tasty coffee all over it to get it back working again, like 10W30 for the noggin. Though not necessary, it helps if the coffee tastes good. Well, Mundo's Artisan Coffee does taste good. They get the best beans from all around the world, and they don't burn them. Support the show and support your brain at mundosartisancoffee.com. Just click the link at the right margin at scotthorton.org. Hey, y'all, Scott here. Let me tell you about Roberts and Roberts Brokerage, Inc. Who knew? Artificial bank credit expansion leads to price inflation and terribly distorted markets. If you've got any savings left at all, you need to protect them. You need to put some, at least, into precious metals. Well, Roberts and Roberts can set you up with the best deals on silver, gold, platinum, and palladium. And they've been doing this since 1977. Hey, if you just need some sound advice about sound money, they're there for you too. Call Tim Fry and the guys at 800-874-9760. That's 800-874-9760. Or check them out at rrbi.co. That's rrbi.co. You'll be glad you did. Well, so I guess I have my own take as a a bit... um, in between there, I actually have an extended family member of mine who was abducted and killed by Hamas. This is not someone right. that I had ever met before, but someone who is related to me, literally in my family, who was caught up in this. Um, wow, and I sorry. also am a student of yours, and I'm a student of William Norman Grigg, and even, uh, dare I say, of Saul Alinsky. And I understand very well about how terrorism is all about provoking a reaction. So rather than right. just putting what Hamas did aside, I can put it and not just putting it in the context of look what Israel is doing with the occupation, but put it in the context of why would Hamas do such a thing other than just their horrible, evil bastards? What was the strategy behind it? What was the point? And the point, of course, is to provoke a reaction and then counter reactions and counter reactions and counter reactions. As we've seen, Um, that was the point to bring on Netanyahu's reprisal, to then put Hezbollah and the Ayatollah and the crown prince of Saudi and everybody else in a bind and force them to have to take a stand or, you know, at at the very least, uh, raise public attention across the world, uh, which they have succeeded in doing. So, um, you know, I think that's maybe a a more useful thing because I don't dismiss it 
as as far as like the depth of the sin and what they did. And in fact, I think everybody needs to understand, as you put it, just what a seminal moment this was, just how deeply this hurt the people of Israel. You can't ignore that, what it looked like to them and 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 how they feel about it and and the depth of of vengeance that some of them feel and and who knows whatever else comes with that and of course the thing was absolutely huge but then i guess to me the lesson of september 11th and the rest of this is that when something horrible happens instead of getting really upset and doing something stupid you're supposed to take a stiff drink and not do something stupid but instead right. be cold and careful and calculating and instead of overreacting which is what they're obviously trying to get you to do you should underreact and reach right. out touch these guys one at a time and call the whole thing over by christmas etc yeah no i i agree i just you know for the rank and file of a, a lot of the anti-Israel swarm, um, they didn't, you know, they don't lose a lot of sleep over the yeah. October 7th. Yeah. Well, they ought to, I mean, the damn thing oh, was no, as I horrible agree. as could I, be. But, you know, yeah. I'm just, yep. this tribal, the way you. the tribal mind thinks it's often, it's often very exclusionary. Yeah. Well, so um, to wrap up here, I, I wonder if we can get back a little bit to this, uh, what we're just referring to there and that you talked about before about, the uh, accusations against um, the people who are sticking up for the Palestinians by the Zionist side. And I just see this in my Twitter mentions all day. And it really is funny because it's in a sense, because it is that Kathy Newman thing. Like they made a great meme out of her when that lady that she's from the BBC, I think it was interviewed Jordan Peterson. And no matter what he said, she would say, so what you're saying is, and then she would say some completely cockamamie thing and leave him going, what are you talking about, lady? I didn't say that. I said this. And I only said that because you asked me and framed it this way, whatever. She was off on her thing. And that became like a running joke that, you know, the Kathy Newmans of the world who all they can do is put words in your mouth. And yet anyone who's sticking up for the Palestinians at all sees words put out. I see in my mentions all day, people put direct quotes around things I'd never said and which is their interpretation of what I really mean to say in that Kathy Newman way which is just preposterous and it it reminds me very much also of the NAFO trolls who were the pro-Ukraine trolls where not that I'm truly this much of a conspiracy kook but just saying to make the point that like you could see the argument that the NAFO trolls and even all the pro-Zionist Hasbara trolls on Twitter are actually all secret agents of the other side. Like, who could make, who could remove your sympathy for the poor, beaten, bombed Ukrainians worse than a bunch of stupid dogs in your mentions telling you how you love getting raped by Vladimir Putin all day or whatever, which is how they came on so strong. And it's just like, you know what? I don't give a damn about Ukraine. Like, uh, what can I say? The more they come at me like that, the less I sympathize, and which is very unfair for me to say. My wife is even from Ukraine. I do sympathize with the poor people of that terrible, poor, unfortunate land very much. But I'm just saying that's how that works. And same thing here as you're talking about in this article. You come at Candace Owens and call her an anti-Semite, she's going to be like, what? I'll show you. I'm going to interview Norman Finkelstein, the most leftist pro-Palestinian Jew I can find in the whole society. I'll show you. And and the same thing as you talked about with Martyr Maid. My friend Dave Smith went on the Joe Rogan show and did a great job explaining a lot of this stuff. He's Jewish. He's from Brooklyn. 
And he's just saying, look, man, be fair. This isn't right, what's happening here, and that kind of thing. And um, and so I think uh, I'd just like to hear you go off about that, about the absolute counterproductive nature of the Hasbara trolls and the NAFO trolls and the way that they go about, what do they think they're doing, intimidating me? And they're going to make me stop tweeting the more they tell me what a traitor I am to America because I don't want to risk war with Russia or because I don't want to support Israel bombing at last count something like 14, 15,000 civilians to death. And that doesn't include the few or more thousand buried in the rubble who will probably just be, you know, bulldozed by the Israelis and never even given a proper burial. Oh, yeah, I'm a big traitor. I love Hamas and I hate Jews so much, they claim, because I'm not for this. And it's as absurd to me as it must be to everybody else. And and who is willing to stand for that? And by the way, I should say this, too. I'm old enough that there was a time where if somebody called you an anti-Semite, man, those are fighting words. You better really mean it if you're going to accuse somebody of that because you could ruin their life. That's like calling somebody a commie during the Red Scare or, you know, calling somebody a racist during the BLM uh, movement or what have you. You could really hurt somebody with that. You don't abuse that and use that against people who actually didn't use the J word at all and were, in fact, being much more specific. And so I think that's, I guess, another thing I'd ask you to comment on is the risk of like really, as Pee Wee Herman would say, wearing it out with by overusing these kinds of accusations. Yeah, no, I mean, the whole uh, relationship or the attacks on the right was, you know, unforced error. It was just, you know, in, in a lot of people's minds too. I mean, I think it's a lot of these attackers were thinking that, you know, they convinced themselves like the uh, NAFO guys did that, you know, these people were repeating Putin's talking points or something like that, some kind of weird conspiracy thingy. Uh, whereas, you know, they were just actually making observations <laughs> and they were attacked for it. Cause I was attacked too. And, you know, saying, you know, don't push us to nuclear war and the like. Um, yeah. I, it, it's also important to understand that, that words like anti-Semitism, you know, are moral weapons and, um, you know, that's been built up over time. It's, you know, the strength of that moral weapon has accumulated over over generations um, to be used in defense of uh, Jews around the world. And um, it's being, it's overuse, expends it, it diminishes it, uh, it's misuse, uh, damages it. And it's being used in, in that way to defend a state's actions, right? Um, and a state's errors. And, and administration's errors, and and and, um, uh, and by using it that way, it puts it, every Jew around the world in in it at risk in the future uh, because of of the diminishment of that term. Um, it, it's a disaster in that regard. It, um, yeah, no, it, it it you know this this is a disaster all around. Yeah. All right. So one last one. Yep. I know that this is probably more harm than good from my side's point of view on this. Well, my side, my own point of view on this. Yeah, sure. On the other hand, I can really see a benefit in having that whiny, sniveling little brat Ben Shapiro put himself as the leader of all pro-Zionist thought on the right. Because 
who could believe in that guy? Who would follow right. him into a fight? Who could take him seriously? I've heard his voice, I don't know, 10 or 15 times by now. I try not to pay any attention. But every time I hear it, I just want to die laughing. And I'm just thinking, if I'm the head of, you know, APAC, I'm going to tell that guy, you should be doing more writing and less podcasting, dude. The more you're out there talking, the more right. discredit you bring to what we're trying to do here. Am I... Is that just too much wishful thinking? I know he has a huge following, but oh yeah, it's like six million on Twitter. It's like yeah, um, no, no. Uh, I put on my Twitter. I, I, he's just got a voice and a kind of attitude that make and face and everything. They just want to punch him in the face. He's got a punchable face. Um, and I, I wrote that Twitter. And Scott Adams uh, blocked me as a result <laughs> in defense of uh, Shapiro. I, I don't understand his appeal. You know, and um, but he seems to have some um, and it. I don't know where he goes forward from this is that, you know. Is he going to be the voice of Israel online? And um, what that does to his. Entire trajectory at this point. Right. I don't think it's a good thing. I think the guys have. I mean, clearly caused a problem with Candace and, you know, with others um, and that uh, uh, that's doing more harm. I mean, Candace is putting out uh, putting Norman and, and his arguments, it's very logical, methodical arguments in front of two million conservatives. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That hadn't probably none of except for a small minority had ever seen him before. Mm hmm. That's, That's interesting. Just, I actually haven't had a chance to watch that yet. And I know that Finkelstein can actually be really dumb and horrible sometimes. So I'm glad to hear that that went well. Well, I mean, yeah, he's, he, you know, he was, it was pretty straightforward. Um, That's great. That's great to hear. Yeah. Um, yeah so listen, I, this is so interesting. Um, the way that you analyze this, in fact, I was reminded of Scott Adams because he has, you know, he has his interests, but his primary interest is persuasion, right? And he wrote these books from the point of view that he's almost like a B.F. Skinner guy, right? We're like, never right. mind your, your thoughts. You are um, a pile of me performing behaviors, and I can determine your behaviors by pushing your uh, wet meat buttons, he says, you know, and all I got to do is I tell you this, and then I tell you this, and then I tell you this, in that order, and I'll get you to do what I want, etc., and he's like a master hypnotist and whatever, so his, yeah. and I'm not saying he's right about everything, but I'm saying, well, I'll, tell, I'll give him this credit. Well, you know what happened to B.F. Skinner, right? I'm sorry? You know what happened to B.F. Skinner. Oh, no, in the end? No, I don't. Oh, no, everyone hated him. I mean, in the oh, community, sure. because he was like, he was like, everything is, you know, I heard this described by uh, 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 Charlie Munger. He was like, a, he, he treated every problem in the psych, you know, psychological problem as, as a kind of uh, amenable to kind of you know, behavioral manipulation uh, and using his model. And, you know, all the, it, it doesn't work that way. There's lots of other, you know, ways of in which we work. Um, and he, you know, fought with everybody else in academia over it. Um, so uh, you, you can't, you know, and uh, there's also kind of a, when you, when you think of people as being, you know, so simplistic that all you have to do is say X, Y, and Z, that uh, it sounds like those guys who are like the, uh, those pickup scammers. Yeah. You, you know, know what? Like you have to diss this I woman. I agree with you. And, you know what it is though? Like, 
I guess I just feel like this about everybody, John, that like there's always going to be a bit of useful truth there, but most people are going to be so committed to their own presence that they go off track. So I think you're right that probably like on the average day or the average topic, he oversimplifies in ways that turn out to not pan out and that kind of thing. On the other hand, I'll tell you, I saw him and I already kind of had been thinking some things about the situation, but when I saw him on CNN in 2015 say that you got to understand what Trump does is he doesn't have insults. He has linguistic kill shots, which was his own term for an insult that sticks to you like one of them sticky bombs in Saving Private Ryan, and you just can't do a thing about it ever again. So when he says Jeb Bush is low energy, it sounds like kind of a weak insult. It's not much of an insult. But the problem is you can never look at Jeb Bush again without thinking about how low his energy is. And if he acts high energy, you'll be thinking to yourself, ah, Low energy, trying to fake right. it, right? And so it's just stuck to him like you put a tattoo all over his face. And he just, there's nothing he can do about it from now on. He's sunk. And then according to his logic, with which I thought was perfect at the time, if you understand that Jeb is out, low energy is a, is a total kill shot and he's done. Well, that means Trump is the nominee. There's nobody else who could stand in his way. Who's going to stand in his way? Rand Paul, Marco Rubio? Yeah, right. And then Hillary Clinton? Yeah, right. Nobody loves Hillary Clinton. Nobody. And just, I, it was clear to me that then in like the fall of 15, based right, on I what I saw way. Scott Adams say, like, yep, Trump's going to be the president, all right. And so you got to yeah. give him some credit. He, he does have some real insight there into. Um, oh, most definitely. He has some, he has some um, very good points. I saw it. In fall of, of 2015, too, I go, you know, that's that's the nominee. When they first announced, you know, the potential slate coming up and, and all the people, all the ex-military folks I was with were like, no way. Go, that's the dude. And, you know, I analyzed the election most more from an open source kind of framework and, and his use of maneuver warfare and the fact that he was the focus of the, of the open source political movement behind him. They sent him to Washington to be a grenade. Which meant that he wasn't judged like regular candidates. Anything that you threw, you know, you charged him with, anything that he did, didn't matter. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he sex scandal, no big deal. It wouldn't stick to him because they were sending him to Washington to disrupt things. Right. And that, uh, you know, every time he changed topics, those fast transients maneuver, transients, um, it disrupted the thinking processes of the people that were opposing him. Um, they, by the time they actually developed a cogent, you know, counterattack, they mm -hmm. were on to the next topic. Well, so <laughs> now let me topic. ask you without the, the without the censorship regimes control over X, although, as you mentioned, Elon Musk has just made his pilgrimage over there to uh, Netanyahu's uh, Israel to find out his marching orders. So we'll see exactly what happens. But you think that or do you think that Trump now stands a chance again because they're not going to be able to restrict him off of Twitter? Well, I mean, he, he was technologically empowered by Twitter. So Twitter was his, his, gave him the superpower to actually do these, you know, fast transients and these, these end runs and get those uh, insults out and repeated in the way that, you know, were propagated. Otherwise, he would have been filtered out and shut down by, you know, the mainstream media. Um, but his effectiveness would have been substantially less. So if he comes back to Twitter, um, he has a good chance of, of, of doing very well in this election. I don't see uh, him getting any traction on any of the other platforms. They'll all be shut to him. Um, and that the pressure that's going to be put on Musk, and this was kind of a, 
early indication that he'll, you know, because White House is the one that picked up and, and chastised Musk about anti-Semitism as well. I mean, they picked up on that and started to attack him on that basis. Uh, it was more of a warning shot that, that, you know, he's going to be under pressure for for this new election, this election coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was it was clear in 2020 to me, even like in October when I was calling the election for Biden, is that, they, you know, the thing that actually was set in place and, and, and made it impossible for Trump to win was the what was going on in the social networks. I mean, it the velocity and the amplification that uh, Trump got in 2016 was nowhere in evidence anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was all suppressed and dampened. Um, messaging was w- couldn't couldn't accelerate. You weren't getting the kind of memetic uh, uh, traffic and other things that you, you used to get. Mm-hmm. Or we did get in 2016. Um, it was pretty much locked in. And well, we have that, we have the hard reporting chance. now. We have the hard reporting now, where we know that they absolutely throttled all of the biggest pro-Trump conservatives at that time. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, and 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 that was actually the way the election was controlled going into this, more so than any other, anything done at the ballot box or whatever. That was like small potatoes in comparison to the you know the large percentages of voters that were swayed through online media. Yeah. And, you know, it just um, that's not going to go away except for maybe on X. But I don't know if X can withstand the kind of regulatory pressure and the and the uh, the, the pressure that they're going to come under. Mm-hmm. It's going to still be crazy for all of the rest of the media companies, even Facebook and whoever, when you quite literally you just can't deny it. John, you got tens of millions of people who support this guy's the front runner for one of the two credible major parties to be the nominee, to be the president of the United States. And he already was the president of the United States before. And is this America or what the hell? How, you know what I mean? Like, you know, in other words, in 2020, this time 2020, it was somehow kind of deniable, right? We're like, but going into this, you know, we still have a year to go. They're going to really be able to persecute him that much when he clearly is the choice of that much, when he, he obviously is from their point of view, a danger to win. He has that much support that he could win the presidency. They can not just covertly, but now overtly just kick him the hell off of Facebook and keep him off going into an election season. That sounds to me like there's going to be a lot of pressure on Zuckerberg and the rest to resist the state and give in to the people, that there would just be too much pressure against them. It just seems so incongruent to do that in America. You know, I mean, of course, they're going to oh, screw no. the libertarian and the green. But you're going to screw the Republican like that? Oh, yeah. It's crazy. No, they and they'll have lots of, the, you know, the kind of mainstream Republicans supporting them. On it. And you, you could actually, you know, still have the account, but you won't get the traction. So, um, yeah, you know, it, it there's no way that the system, at least the people who are, are, are running these major platforms, um, certainly not with the major media that, that it's going to favorably message their audiences, their viewers, of, you know, about Trump. Yeah. He's not going to get a fair shake by it. even it. it, it the the de- de-Trumpification effort that I wrote about back in you know October 2020 um, hasn't really panned out fully because he's still around. I mean, the lawfare, unrestricted lawfare against him and all of his associates. And, and the like hasn't hasn't really kept him down, yeah, um, and knocked him out. And the disconnection that they initially did, um, 
hasn't uh, turned him into an afterthought. He's found ways around that. Um, yeah. But, you know, the platforms that he's currently on, I definitely see them being um, kicked off the network at a, at a base level. Like we saw, you know. Um, like with Parler. Parler, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, they're not going to exist going into this election. They'll be gone. Man, how rigged can you get? Just unbelievable. They got um, they got a duopoly on the app stores, and that's it. We will not allow you to have pro-Trump apps on your phone. So say it. Some oligarchs under some yeah, they, pretended they even authority. Yeah, they won't be able to get hosting. <laughs> yeah, or, or internet connectivity. They're gone. Uh, email service, uh, anything. They'll they'll be disconnected, and then the pressure will all be on X. And you know they've been building up for this. I mean, I mean that was. A big part of why they, you know, uh, Elon is under so much constant pressure mm-hmm. is the fear that he will bring back Trump. Yeah. I mean, the ultimate evil. It's something. Listen, I'm so sorry we're out of time because I could ask you one last question for the rest of the afternoon here, John, but I got to run to my next guest. I'm on All such right. a time well, crunch. You're a busy man. But, All right. Good. Thank you so much for coming back care, on the Scott, show. Man. Yeah, I really yeah, appreciate pleasure. you a lot. Okay, guys. Yeah, yep. Um, that is John Robb. He's at Global Gorillas. He's at John Robb on Twitter. Uh, easy handle there. It's uh, two B's in Robb. And Global Gorillas on Substack is johnrobb.substack.com. The latest is Israel's online front collapses. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. APSradio.com. Antiwar.com scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.